two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Money points ever. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention please uh, for this afternoon's feature attraction. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I am Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Filmmaker Edgar Wright captured the attention of geeks everywhere with his television series Spaced and his previous two films, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, all of which starred Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. All three of these properties are personally beloved to me, which means I was anticipating this weekend in a big way given it sees the release of Edgar Wright's new film, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, though this is his first film without his regular collaborators. If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. You have seven evil ex-boyfriends? Bingo. Consider our fight begun. And I have to fight defeat. Defeat your seven evil exes? Pretty much. Prepare to die. What? What's up? How's life? He seems nice. I want to take them apart. We all have baggage. Yeah, well, my baggage doesn't try and kill me every five minutes. With Scott Pilgrim, Wright is adapting Brian Lee O'Malley's series of graphic novels, which, while popular in their own market, are hardly mainstream titles that everyone knows. And he's doing so with a young ensemble, some might say up-and-coming, young cast that includes Michael Sarah in the title role, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Kieran Culkin, and many, many others. And the premise, while silly, is easy to sum up. In order to win the heart of Ramona Flowers, Scott Pilgrim, a lanky 23-year-old Canadian, must defeat her seven evil exes to win her heart. An exaggerated, hyper-stylized video game and comic book-inspired fight scenes brought to vivid color by Edgar Wright here. So, Ben, given the obscurity of this title and the previously, let's say, niche appeal of Wright's other work, has Edgar Wright made a crowd-pleaser here, and does this have the goods to reach out to disaffected young people everywhere? Emphasis on young people, and the answer is yes. Um, I don't think there is anybody in this movie that is older than 30 years old, or looks to be, anyway. Nobody in the in the main cast, anyway. Right. There is, there's a fun cameo. Right, okay, yeah, spoil. which we'll get, we may get into okay. later. Um Yes, I do think that this is going to reach out to disaffected young viewers, and I do think that this is a winner. While I was watching it, it's one of those unusual experiences where you feel like you haven't seen anything like it before. And that is completely to the credit of Edgar Wright as a filmmaker. I think that this guy is a unique talent, and I've heard from several sources that this is a guy who didn't grow up watching movies, that he discovered the art form pretty late and didn't have as much access uh, two films to sort of draw upon for inspiration as a lot of other American filmmakers and other filmmakers do. He he started watching them late, and so a lot of what we see from Edgar Wright in terms of his technical prowess is completely original in something that was born within his brain, which I think is very interesting. And that that to me is evident in Scott Pilgrim. Because one thing we have to emphasize here is that this is a movie that is for the video game generation. 
and this is something that anybody who has ever played more than let's say two video games will totally appreciate from the company credit logo to start the movie sure. it had me in stitches at the beginning and a lot of the characters in this movie aren't what I would call utterly likable I think that this movie is full of people who make a lot of really bad decisions maybe based on their young age and just their uh, lack of wisdom so to speak and, and in a lot of ways they're hurtful towards others uh -huh. and again they're just unlikable people but I think that this is just kind of like this universe of those kinds of people that happen to be trapped in what I think is really a great movie I agree with you I've heard this described in several reviews as a coming-of-age tale in which manhood is beaten into Scott Pilgrim and I kind of I kind of agree with that the title character, as played by Michael Cera, is not, as you said, the most likable person. He's kind of inconsiderate, he's selfish, uh, and, and there's a character played by Aubrey Plaza whose sole purpose in the film is to point this out to him at inopportune times. But, I mean, I agree with you in that sense. I mean, this movie, I expect it to be visually amazing. I think that Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz both show entertaining glimpses of what we get here as far as Edgar Wright's filmic style and his vocabulary is, you know, the fast cutting, uh, the tracking shots that really shouldn't be tracking shots and the, the cuts from one scene to the next at unexpected places. That's all over Scott Pilgrim, but with this movie, he, he really dials it up. You know, this movie makes Hot Fuzz look like a, like a mumblecore movie quite frankly, as far as uh, its its skill, just, just the sheer improvement that Edgar Wright has shown from one film to the next. Yeah, and a lot of movies where they rely heavily on gimmicks in terms of how what the presentation is like, they sort of lose steam after the first 20 minutes, uh -huh. and, and they abandon that format. Scott Pilgrim doesn't do that. It really it, it, it throws you in there as it's going 100 miles per hour in this way that it's trying to tell the story with all of these transitions and these uh, graphics that you see on screen and it doesn't stop there might be one five minute period in the movie where it actually slows down uh, for the sake of the narrative uh -huh. I guess you could say in something that has happened to uh, the hero sure. of the movie but after that it picks up right where it left off and I loved it. I really did. Like, I mean, seriously, I, I'm a fan of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. I, I like them, but I'm not. I wouldn't say I, I worship Edgar Wright like a lot of you know a lot of a lot of people do. They, they I mean, yeah, yeah, I do. Like you, yeah. Right. I mean, and that's not to that's not to slight Edgar Wright. His his and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, their collaborations are undeniably hilarious. And with those two movies, that's where I really saw a real filmmaker budding in terms of his editing skills. I mean, they're unmatched, I would say, in those two movies. Highly entertaining and skillful. And those are brought to Scott Pilgrim. And I think that, in a lot of ways, he manages to innovate with this movie, sure. with his editing, and again, with the special effects, which aren't annoying at all. I would say, who are the, the fifth and sixth um, exes of... The twins. Yeah, the twins. I don't know their names right off. Like Cotton Yagi twins. Yeah, okay. During that sequence, I like almost got out of my seat and started cheering uh, at one point. And that doesn't happen very often. It's a pretty great sequence. Yeah, with movies these days. Like, you know, I'm, I'm able to just kind of enjoy it internally. But, you know, I laughed out loud. I, yep. you know, 
fist pumped a few times, I think, and <laughs> it's during that sequence and really during the final battle. And I, I you know, I don't really want to reveal who the the uh, last Evil X is. I'm I sure think the marketing has, but it's more yeah. fun to yeah go into it. I did, know, especially I, if you're a film fan. This I didn't really know pleasure. the yeah the order uh-huh. of who they were going to be. I know who's in the movie, but uh, to see who the last one is, to, for me, it's a fan favorite. Yeah, and the, he delivers. But their fight at the end is incredible. Right. And one thing, Corey, that I really liked in terms of the video game aspect of this is how they present it in levels. Sure. How each level gets harder as you get to say the main boss. Like the first one with Matthew Patel, uh, that character. Yep. Um, he, you know, it just kind of reminds you of that first boss that you fight, where it's not extremely hard uh-huh. necessarily, and you make it through fairly easily. And you might think, well, this isn't going to be so bad. And then you make it to the second one, who I will reveal is Chris Evans. Uh, He's hilarious. Yeah, as Lucas Lee, the uh, movie star. Um, and it gets just a little bit harder because you, you introduce these new aspects like, say, bosses within the boss's level. Yeah, he's got minions that yeah, actually fight. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, let's talk a little bit about the cast and the casting because I think that, uh, well, certainly Michael Sarah being in the lead role is sort of controversial as far as, as, far as these things go um, and it may be costing it some box office dollars, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um there's been a lot of talk about Michael Sarah being a one-note actor uh, who replays the same character, uh, though he's been in, like, what, five films, so it's kind of hard to make that determination, you know, in my opinion. Yet, I think with Scott Pilgrim, um, I think the haters should be decidedly silenced because he's not really... He's playing a variation, of course, because, I mean, he's Michael Sarah. You're not going to hire him for some sort of, you know, Pacino-like range, but... Scott Pilgrim in this movie, he, he plays a more selfish character than we've seen. He plays a stupider character than we've seen in the past. It's a really interesting journey to me. Uh, like I said, a coming-of-age tale. Uh, and I think he's perfectly complimented by Mary Elizabeth Winstead here, who, uh, as the as the appealing but, but sort of damaged Ramona Flowers. You disagree with the appealing. I do. Yeah. Even yeah. after seeing the film? Yes, after seeing the film, I do. And I think that people make bad decisions, like I said, in this movie, uh, look, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a pretty girl. Uh, I think most people were first introduced to her in Death Proof, uh-huh. where she played the actress who is in a cheerleader cheerleading outfit, who uh, her friends use to uh, further their own agenda right. later in the movie. Um, she's a pretty girl, but for whatever reason, I haven't read this comic or whatever, and I think it's pretty broadly drawn, actually. I uh-huh. mean, they don't look like human beings. Uh, in in the drawings necessarily, they look, to me what I've seen it looks kind of like the Powderpuff Girls in yeah, a way. Yeah, it, it's stylized. And, yeah, uh, stylized art. Um, for whatever reason, Edgar Wright chose to make this girl very unattractive in this movie. Unless say, you are just deep within this hipster community Uh-oh. that would find that attractive for some reason. I mean, she's. Uh, it seems like the only thing that really draws Scott Pilgrim to her is her pink hair. And once she changes that, which she does several times throughout the movie, it she sort of loses her luster for him. And the whole adventure that he's decided to go on seems like it might not be as worthwhile because she doesn't have the pink hair. Going into this movie, I was wondering, why is he after this girl? Why is he willing to fight seven people when 
look, she's she doesn't necessarily look like she's worth it, and that's a very superficial way of looking at it for sure. But once we get to know her, she's not the nicest person in the world, and let's be honest, she's gotten around. I mean, he's having to go through seven boyfriends or seven exes, excuse me, uh, to win the affection or, or just have the chance to date her. Not This isn't guaranteeing that she's going to stay with him. Well, I, and one reason I like the movie so much is that you could interpret Scott's journey all as metaphor, as getting to know somebody. You, you have the superficial attraction, which you didn't share, I suppose, with Scott, mm-hmm. though I did, and I don't necessarily consider myself a hipster, and I hope my fiance <laughs> isn't listening because she might not appreciate that but like you said as layers are pulled back and revealed Ramona becomes less appealing and Scott has to figure out why he's doing what he's doing because let's face it I mean Scott's no no good catch either Mm -hmm. he's a freeloader who um, lives off of his his gay best friend uh, going so far as to insist upon sleeping in his bed because they don't they only have one bed yeah, um, it's disgusting. It's yeah, it's really really funny. It has some of the the best gags in the yeah. movie, or as a result of that. Why does everything have to be so complicated? If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Break out the L word. Lesbian. The other L word. Lesbians. It's love, Scott. I wasn't trying to trick you. Hey, buddy, look. If she really is the girl of your dreams then you have to let her know. You have to overcome any and all obstacles that lie in your path. You can do it. Be with her. It's your destiny. Plus, I need you to move out. What? But they they emphasize, uh, I think one of his ex-girlfriends or somebody uh, says explicitly that he's a womanizer. Right. Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. So apparently some people think he's a catch, even though he's the bass player in a band, the bass player who is often ignored by fans, you know, uh, I thought that that was kind of funny, right. that of course he, the hero would be the bass player of a band. But going back to your point about Michael Cera, I do think that this is, like you said, a variation of the same thing that he does, but I like that you emphasize that he's a dumber version of that. Yeah. And I think that that works. Again, I'm not a huge Michael Cera fan. I've seen literally, I think, all of his work to this point, except for year one. Yeah, I don't know um, about that. <laughs> and in every single movie, he's basically doing the Michael Sh- Sarah shtick, the, you know, awkward, uh, wise beyond his years uh, teen, I guess you could say. And he does that here for sure. I mean, you have these Sarah-isms, I guess you could say, throughout the entire thing. But I, I don't think during the movie did I ever find myself distracted because of that, like I have, say, with, like, super bad or Youth in Revolt, or something like sure. that. no, I agree with you. Uh, so I think that he's finally embracing a character and believing in mm-hmm. uh, what Edgar Wright is trying to do. And it doesn't it doesn't hurt that he has to get in massive battles with people, at, you know. Oh, and he pulls it off, He man. does. Like, yeah. y- you would think, wait, it's Michael Sarah, he is a puny little, you know, pipsqueak, I guess. Uh, and he's here doing, like, martial arts and fighting with swords. It's convincing. It is. It really is. And I'm sure that a lot of it, um, you know, I'm sure they use several stunt people to help him out. But there are a lot of shots where you see Michael Sarah's face and he's doing this. And yeah. special effects or no, I, I think that, again, I mean, he immersed himself. you got to give him credit for that. Yeah, you do. Um, and I, I want to talk briefly more about the ensemble. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kieran Culkin as, as Scott Pilgrim's uh, roommate, Wallace Wells. Mm-hmm. Um Excellent casting, excellent performance, um, sort of a scene stealer. Uh, also, uh, the band Sex Bomb, um, 
Allison P- Pill and Mark Webber, and then Johnny Simmons, who who's sort of off to the side for most of the movie, but just gets these great looks and these great lines. He's young Neil, right? Young Neil. And yeah. who? Mark Webber is. What Steven else has he Stills? been in? He. Oh man. Recently, I, I recognize uh, him. Um, not because of. Well, the, he he's he plays the teenager in in Todd Salon's storytelling. That's not that too recent. That might be it. Okay. I don't know what he's been yeah. in recently. He has the worst beard I've ever seen. It's it's hilarious. It's bad. <laughs> But I guess that's you know maybe maybe it's the point. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but let's okay. Here's one person we definitely need to single out, uh, not only for her performance, but also what what she has to do with the narrative, and some of these decisions that are made. And that's Knives Chow. Yeah. And definitely. I'm not. What's the actress's name? Uh, Ellen Wong. I think this is her first film. Yeah, and she really to me is like the heart of the movie. I agree. In a way, because yeah. you have she she plays the 17-year-old girlfriend of Scott Pilgrim as the movie opens, and he's enjoying this and he's being questioned by his friends and his family as to why he a 22-year-old is dating a 17-year-old, which it it seems like he might like her, but it also seems like it, it it's sort of just it's something to do, I guess, something sure. new to do just to date somebody who's out of your age range, so to speak. Um and then once he sees Ramona, he quickly abandons the notion of dating or uh, potentially having a lasting relationship with knives. Right. And you as the audience member, me personally, I was like, wait a second, knives is much better than her. Did you think that? No. No? I don't know why. I mean, maybe it was just because she was so young. I love Knives, though. Knives is a great character. Um, Have you asked your fiancé to dye her hair pink? No, Corey? I haven't. I haven't. That, that's, that's a conversation for later. Um, but but I, I think that I'm, I'm more satisfied with the conclusion of Knives' arc as it is in the film, without trying to give too much away. Um, and I think that that character has a really interesting, really, really nice arc. Uh, like Scott, sort of gaining um, self-respect in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to talk vaguely here, mm-hmm. so I apologize for my halted speech, or more more than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Knives is Knives is a great character, though. She's got some great gags, like the scene with her and Brandon Routh as the uh, as the vegan ex-boyfriend um, Todd. Ingram. Todd Ingram. So that's... Okay, that's funny. I'd never thought about how close his name is to Scott's name. Uh, And and it's funny because they're both bass bass players. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, I mean, she just has these little great moments. And and I think that's the thing you can say about this entire ensemble. They all have, you know, only a handful of scenes. um, But they're all great scenes. And everybody gets something great to do. You know, even like Anna Kendrick as Scott's sister, Stacy, who is mostly seen in split-screen phone conversations. Um, has excellent moments. All you, they all have excellent lines. Yeah, I totally agree. This is a very good ensemble. E- even when they are at a party and you see the character who knows everybody, uh, he's been on the Office before. That's where I recognize. I forget his name. He's yeah. the IT guy on the Office. Everybody forgets his name in the show too. So yeah, and he he's really good in the movie, and I liked him a lot, especially when Scott comes up to him and says, "Have you seen a girl that has this hairstyle?" And it's just like this doodle, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, "Yeah, sure, that's Ramona." That's hilarious, yeah, that's and really funny. it's just that that very fast uh, humor that really propels this movie. But b- 
before we take up an entire half hour talking about this movie, let's quickly talk about some of the X's in sure. this movie. And you brought up Brandon Routh. Yeah. And a lot of people have criticized Brandon Routh as this very boring actor, and this is totally based on his work in Superman Returns. People thought that he was just a dull Superman. I, I, I don't want to get into that, but I disagree with that assessment. But, as far to say that he's the bright spot of that movie. Well, you acknowledge that people have said I that. I acknowledge that, that that is a complaint, a dumb complaint, but yeah. I acknowledge it. Um, he's outstanding in this. Yes, he is. He's great, and a lot of people have probably seen him also in Zack and Mary Make a Porno. The Kevin Smith movie where he is another straight man, I guess, to Justin Long. So to speak. Funny guy, yeah. <laughs> well well played. Um, but uh, as Todd Ingram, the, the bassist, I really got to hand it not only to him. He, I thought he really gave it his all and was funny. But the character design of Todd yeah. Ingram was amazing. Especially when he sort of went in the zone where his eyes turn white and his hair starts flaming. He's like, he's like uh, the guy from Mortal Kombat. He looks like a video game. Yeah. He really does. And this is like the first time in a while that I that I know of where somebody has really pulled off. Uh, this feels to me more like a video game adaptation than a comic book uh, adaptation. And I haven't read it, you know, so I'm sure that this may or may not be faithful. Or it probably is because it seems like a lot of people are happy with it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, again, this video game motif is what it feels like because you're having to go through these different levels, and when they start the fight in between the characters, they put a versus uh, <laughs> graphic, which is really cool and got me pumped every single time. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, you know, the base-off in this movie between Scott Pilgrim and Ingram, and then uh, we'll, we'll only briefly talk about this. Spoiler! But once the base-off <laughs> is over, you get the vegan police or the Vegan Squad, or whatever they're called, played by Thomas Jane and Clifton Collins Jr. in what might be the funniest moment of the movie. It's awesome. And Their, their clipboard of offenses. Yeah. Oh, man. Hilarious. Hilarious. And, and Brandon Ralph's really good in that scene, he, too. He plays that like a champ. He really does. And the, uh, <laughs> the, the payoff with their characters, when they run off in the background, <laughs> yeah. and when they high-five... I lost it, man. <laughs> I, I really too. lost it. I did, too. Uh, so, anyway, spoiler <laughs> over, I promise. But uh, there, there's a certain spinoff that deserves to be explored, I would say, uh, thanks to these characters and Scott Pilgrim. Um, but, again, the uh, tell me the twins' names again. The Katanyagi twins. Maybe the highlight of the movie for me uh, from a special effects standpoint and just what's happening uh, with the story. But, I mean... Again, before we run out of time here, Corey, anything else you want to point out? I think that more needs to be said probably about the accomplishment of Edgar Wright. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I, I have only read the first three issues or three books of the uh, graphic novel series. There are six. Um, but, you know, I recognize shots you know, uh, from, the, from the frames of the graphic novel. I think that... Uh, I think there's a fan-made trailer, actually, that replaces the shots in the teaser trailer with shots from the graphic novel uh, and sort of overlays the sound. Um, and all that speaks to his commitment to sort of replicate what Brian Lee O'Malley created in print, uh, his, his fidelity to the source material, but also, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that he added and he innovated uh, so much with this movie. Um, Frankly, this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Okay, well, since we're going there, let's let's rank, you know. And, I, and our friend Ben Stark hates this aspect <laughs> of our show, but we we got to do it. Um, 
Is this Edgar Wright's best movie? It might be. Mm-hmm. I need to see it again. Have you seen it once? I've seen it once. Did you go at midnight? I did. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to see it again. I, I'd like to see it again today, uh, but we'll see. It's hard to say that his best movie doesn't star Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Right. Uh, because there, there is a legion of devoted fans out there who will die defending those movies. Well, it seems like I've watched each of those movies dozens of times, mm-hmm. and until I watch Scott Pilgrim that many times, it's going to be hard for me to say that. Mm-hmm. But I think as far as filmmaking craft, that Edgar Wright outdoes himself in a big way with this movie, and I think that's easy to see on a first viewing. Yeah, and to those who are skeptical about his uh, departure from working with those two individuals to make this movie, uh, please, I mean, rest, you know, rest those worries because he can do it on his own. He yeah. really can. And, I mean, I think that that was also evident when he made his trailer for Grindhouse 2, Don't. Even though Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are... They make they, small they're, they're appearances. Yeah, they're I guess there. that could count as a collaboration, but <laughs> I, I look at that more as like a, you know, Edgar Wright solo project. Uh, I guess, in a way that was influenced maybe by the Grindhouse guys. Uh, but really, I, I can't wait for Edgar Wright's next movie. I mean, if it happens to be another Scott Pilgrim movie, we'll talk later about whether or not that's possible. Sure. Um, but really, Edgar Wright, he had already proven himself. And he always impresses me in his interviews and stuff like that. But I do think that this is his best movie. After one viewing, uh, and I, and even though I'm not wild about some of the characters in the movie, I can't wait to revisit it. I might even see this in the theater again. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely will be seeing it in the theater again. Uh, I had such a good time with this in a way that has been elusive for me lately mm-hmm. in, in movies. Well, uh, let's take a quick break, Corey, and we'll come back and we'll talk about another movie that I saw this weekend out of the three studio releases that uh, came out in Tuscaloosa and nationwide. And before we go, Corey, explain our next musical selection. You went to a live show recently. Yeah, on uh, on Wednesday night, I traveled to Atlanta to see uh, Spoon and uh, this band, The Arcade Fire. This is a track from their new album, um, and it's called Ready to Start. Their new album, The Suburbs. Their new album, The Suburbs, which is number one on Billboard now. And you recommend it? Oh, yes. Okay, I haven't heard a a note of it, so this should be fun. I hope you enjoy it. This is the Arcade Fire with Ready to Start. All right, we'll be right back. This is Aspect Radio, the movie talk show. I only came here to do two things, man. Kick some ass and drink some beer. (laughs) Looks like we're almost out of beer. Back here on Aspect Radio, this is the Movie Talk Show, and there's a reason that I am playing that song other than to get pumped up for the rest of the day, Corey. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but a few years ago when I heard that Sylvester Stallone was assembling this all-star cast of badass action stars to deliver the ultimate B-movie adventure about a team of mercenaries with a never-ending supply of bullets, I was in before Lionsgate even greenlit The Expendables. They are the world's greatest mercenaries. The only life they've ever known is war. The only loyalty they've ever had is to each other. Drop your 
Got the four on the left. Why don't you take the two on the right and leave the rest? You're not that fast anymore. Oh, here we go. The only thing faster is... Light. Exactly. We'll see. And recruiting the likes of today's action heroes like... Jason Statham and Jet Li, along with names of the past like Mickey Rourke, Dolph Lundgren, and Eric Roberts, Stallone got his wish to deliver audiences a bit of a throwback to action films of the 80s and 90s that relied less on CGI and more on thin plots, explosions, and steroids. And heading into this film, given several of these actors are well past their primes, and the fresh ones aren't exactly the best at what they do, I think, personally, I wasn't really expecting the greatest action experience of my life, one that would rival Predator, Die Hard, or Rambo, I honestly just wanted to see Stallone on screen with his fellow action legends of the genre, Bruce Willis and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, even if just for what is literally one or two minutes. So, so did the movie deliver on that? It delivered on those three at sure. the same time. Yeah. And that, that one that scene. That did happen. It happened. He pulled it off, man. And... I got that feeling again, you know what I mean? Yeah. Back when I was a kid, when I saw Arnold on screen, and we haven't seen him in a long time, not since, I don't I don't know, Around the World in 80, day, yeah, I 80 that, Days. I think that's it. That was his last movie, and thank God I didn't see that uh, for myself. I've seen what he looks like in that movie, yeah. and it's a shame. Um, but I'm trying to think of the last great action movie he was in. I guess Eraser would probably uh, be the last good one, um, yeah. co-starring James Caan. Yeah, Vanessa Williams. Yeah, uh, Some I saw alligators. that. I saw that on a double feature with, uh, I guess, a Time to Kill back in '96. Oh, yeah, time flies. <laughs> uh, so it's been a good 14 years since his last good action movie. But anyway, I think he's still got it, man. I think Schwarzenegger still knows how to do it on screen. You know, when the mood is right, when he feels like he's he's in an action movie and he's he's helping uh, his buddy Sylvester Stallone out and Bruce Willis is having a lot of fun here too and we literally only get one minute with Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie but it was enough for me to justify sitting in that theater for an hour and 45 minutes and look the expendables gets done what it was trying to get done okay it's loud there are explosions there are lots of bodies. This probably has one of the highest body counts of all time. But what we're really talking about, quality-wise, is about half one of those good action movies I was talking about uh -huh. and half straight-to-video or straight-to-DVD quality. Uh, you know, something that would star Stone Cold Steve Austin or... Randy Couture, guys who do appear in this movie, or even maybe like a recent Dolph Lundgren movie. Um, <clears throat> but really, I'm not sure what it, what else it was trying to do other right. than get a bunch of big, badass, muscle-bound action stars and put a bunch of big guns in their hands and just start blowing people away. Well, what you're doing essentially here, since I haven't seen it, is selling me on the notion of me going to see this movie mm -hmm. later. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say... I've been pretty impressed with Sylvester Stallone's recent output. I thought Rocky Balboa was much better than expected, and going into Rambo, uh, which is the fourth film, uh, titled, I think, in other countries, John Rambo, but just Rambo here, um, expecting, you know, just explosions and people blowing up and things like that. That movie delivered in a big way. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'm looking forward to this movie based on those expectations of just seeing people blown up. But I have heard complaints, 
and uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, that the ensemble is not as well utilized as it possibly could have been. Well, look, this movie, it's Stallone's movie, so to speak, but in a way, I guess the heart of it is Jason Statham. Uh I guess you would consider him, in a way, the lead, because a lot of it has to, like, his his actions in terms of the the big action sequence Mm -hmm. uh, really sort of drive the plot along with Stallone's, and he has sort of this romantic arc, I guess you could say, in the movie that I guess Stallone wanted to incorporate for whatever reason. It does... Um, lead to some, you know, humorous scenes with his ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend. Um, but look, Randy Couture, this UFC guy, he's not the best actor in the world. And Stone Cold Steve Austin, you could say the same about him. Um, and I have no idea what Dolph Lundgren is trying to do acting-wise in this movie, but it doesn't work. And that's not to say that Dolph Lundgren was ever Lawrence Olivier. Um, but I did. I do like some of his work, man. I mean, he's a badass and Universal Soldier. Let, yeah, Universal Soldier is awesome. And look, I I I do like Showdown in Little Tokyo. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his film with Brandon Lee from the mid 90s. I'm familiar with it, but I did not see it. Get more familiar with it. <laughs> um, it's Lungeren's best work. Um, but seriously, he's pretty bad in this movie. And Jet Li too. I mean, he's sort of suffers from Ken Watanabe and Inception Syndrome where he doesn't speak the best English, perhaps worse than Watanabe, and I'm not as willing to forgive him like I was Watanabe in this. It's difficult. What is? My life is difficult. I need more money. Why is that? I work harder than the rest. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Everything is harder for me. When I get hurt, the only is bigger. Because I'm smaller. Mm -hmm. When I travel, I need to go farther. I know, because you're small, right? Yes. I need more money. I know you told me. Get out there! Why me? Because you're smaller! And, and again, I mean, the script isn't there. It's not a very good script. The, the plot is so paper-thin and inconsequential to what Stallone intends to deliver with uh-huh. this movie. All he just really needs is a bunch of bad guys in these um, South American military uniforms for them to blow away. And look, throw Terry Crews in there. He's pretty funny. I mean, he's known now as the Old Spice guy. I think he's done a lot of funny work in the past. But he's limited here, too. I mean, it's just a little too much to go around. That's a shame. I, I guess. love Terry Crews. There is some fun with Eric Roberts. I mean, he is kind of hamming it up as this bad guy. But most of the screen time, yes, is given to Stallone, Statham, Lundgren, who fa- who you know factors heavily in this plot, and uh, Jet Li as well. And beyond that, it, it's really people's screen time is really kind of sprinkled uh, throughout. But again, I mean... There are, there are enough blood and guts and explosions to keep people happy, I guess. And I, I can't say that I recommend it, but it's not like I don't recommend it either. I mean, it's just kind of there. And unlike you, I don't really think that Stallone has the chops as a writer-director anymore. Uh, I love Rocky too, and, you know, uh-huh. the other Rocky movies. I think he did a great job with those. But 
Um, what I gather from him and what you might have read, also read on, say, Ain't It Cool when he does these Q&As with fans, I mean, this is a guy who certainly knows his action history. You know, he's a part of it. He's a big part of it. Sure. And he, he's somebody who thinks he knows what the fans want. And he might be able to offer some input, but, God, why not? If you're going to bring people back, why not bring, like, John McTiernan back oh, to direct man. this? You know what I mean? And let somebody who has a little better of a handle with this kind of thing. Yeah, I think the FBI might be concerned about that. Though. Yeah, true. I guess we'd have to wait until he was, you know, finished with right. whatever he's doing right now. But I just mean, you know, get, like, an action director to handle this from the 80s or 90s who's done it before and uh, take it out of Stallone's hands where he doesn't... You, I mean, I think that throughout this movie you're kind of aware that Stallone is at the helm, so uh-huh. to speak. And, and it's in the dialogue that he's saying, too. I mean, he's often, like, finishing other people's sentences or when they have a line, he answers right away, you know, like he knows the script so well, you know what right. I mean? And it, this yeah. is a Stallone masterpiece we're talking about here. But... Look, it is pretty mediocre. I think you're going to walk out probably. Look, Corey, I know you. You're probably going to walk out saying, it was awesome, I don't care. <laughs> and that's fine. And I think, you know, if, if people do that, I don't care. I mean, look, there is a lot of really good action in it. I'm not going to lie. And it does, like Rambo, I think, the most recent Rambo, which I haven't seen, and I didn't really care for Rocky Balboa, uh, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but like Rambo, it does kind of have that CGI gore element where, you know, if somebody gets chopped up, you see this blood uh-huh. splatter, kind of like kick-ass. Yeah, I don't remember too much of that in Rambo, hmm. which is one reason I liked it so much. If this is all over the Expendables, that kind of bothers It's not me. all over it. It's uh-huh. not. It's just sort of like riddled throughout okay. here and there when people are getting knives in the throat or something like that, of which there is a lot. It's just amazing how these guys, not only do they have a never-ending supply of bullets, I mean, we can expect that, but they've just got knives handy that they just throw. You know, when they're, yeah. in, a, when they're in a tight spot, Jason Statham's just got this throwing knife. He can just launch into somebody's skull, and uh, that's, just, that's just the way, that's how they get down in the Expendables. I will say, Mickey Rourke is really good in this. That's good. And obviously, he's doing Stallone a favor by being in this at the uh-huh. height of his newfound popularity. And this is just Mickey Rourke playing Mickey Rourke, let's be honest, but he's like an ex-expendable uh, who helps them out and, you know, gets them jobs, I guess, with guys like, who I, w- I won't say who gives them the job. I don't want to ruin it for anybody. But, no, he, he does have a lot of fun. And the Expendables and Scott Pilgrim are playing in Tuscaloosa and Nationwide at the Cobb Hollywood 16. And talking about the Expendables actually leads us into our first headline, Corey. And let's run through these as fast as we possibly can. Sure, sure. Uh, first off, let's talk box office quickly. And Corey, sometimes I hate it when I'm right, but heading into this weekend with three major studio releases, all with niche and broad appeal, somebody was going to get left out of the party. And that somebody was indeed Scott Pilgrim, as I predicted in my column yesterday. The Expendables will reach upwards of $35 million this weekend, as reported by Deadline Hollywood, followed by Eat, Pray, Love at $26 million, with Edgar Wright's movie follow, falling to fourth place with just about $11 million. And that's even a spot behind last week's number one, The Other Guys. And this shouldn't surprise either of us, but I think that there is a pertinent concern for studios as a result of this. Is Michael Sarah to you, Corey, is he capable of opening a studio release? I mean, although we should note Intangibles in his corner with Scott Pilgrim, it being a popular existing property and an adaptation in the hands of a headliner like Edgar Wright. I don't think Michael Sarah is capable of opening a studio release. I think that 
he's going through sort of the uh, the audience fatigue uh, part of his career. Though somebody made an interesting point um, on one website or another that I read, which is God help us if uh, you know the internet were around when Bill Murray was was first starting in comedy, because Bill Murray has always sort of played Bill Murray. Uh, not that I think Michael Sarah is as talented, but I think that you could draw a parallel there for sure. Uh, that he is just playing himself in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think Scott Pilgrim has a lot more problems, you know, as far as mass appeal going for it than, than Michael Sarah. Uh, the fact that it is somewhat obscure both in, in its existing property and in uh, just the style of movie that it is. You know, this, this thing is going to be lost on 90% of people um, because it's such a particular, like, blend of, of hipster rock and video games. And, I mean, it feels accessible to me but I can't really speak about how accessible it is, and judging by the box office, I'd say not very. It's going to struggle to uh, reach the heights of even, say, like $40 million, you know and, what and I mean? And that's, that's a shame, uh, because I think that studios really shouldn't hesitate to give Edgar Wright, uh, I don't know, more work oh, after no. this. No, I think that this is a guy who is capable of really delivering on a big say studio action movie you know how, how would you like it if edgar wright directed the expendables <laughs> i think or the th avengers or yeah the avengers or something like that i think that this is a guy who really is a, a fan uh and somebody who is a part of the audience that he's trying to deliver something to so studio heads don't delete his number from yourself no, please don't um to move on, Julie Roberts' last four $100 million grocers are last year's Valentine's Day and Steven Soderbergh's Oceans Trilogy, all ensemble pieces that didn't rely on Roberts' star power or track record for their success. You have to go all the way back to 2000's Aaron Brockovich, also directed by Steven Soderbergh, to find the last film to reach that number thanks primarily to Roberts' appeal on its own. In the 90s, nobody could touch her as a box office draw as she lined up hit after hit. But Eat, Pray, Love's respectable but modest numbers suggest it will struggle to reach $100 million domestically. So, Ben, have we seen the end of Julia Roberts as a dominant box office force? I do think that we have. And it, it's kind of a shock to me because I didn't think that it would just take, say, one misfire on her part to really uh -huh. fall off of the face of the earth. And she hasn't really done that. She's still considered... A, an A-list celebrity who probably makes bank whenever she makes a movie, but back when, say, The Mexican came out, yeah. uh, and then that was followed by America's Sweethearts, which did a little bit better, but then Mona Lisa Smile. Mexican and Mona Lisa Smile were two departures and two um, failures, I would uh -huh. say, even though both of them, I think, made around $50, $60 million a piece, something like that. Um, but yeah, I do, I, I, and this is a sad fact about older actresses right and she's getting older she might not look it um but as they get older the the roles sort of it becomes more of a challenge for them to get roles that are going to appeal to broad audiences i think that you have a very unique case and i think that she might this might apply to her too but you have a unique case with meryl streep who sure is still at the top of her game and is what i would consider a box office draw based on the success of, um, let's say, Mamma Mia and Devil Wears Prada and Julie and Julia to an extent, and recently it's complicated, which I just watched the other day, and she can get any role she wants, right. just like Julia Roberts, and I think that they're going to do well. But I mean, Corey, 
looking back on the 1990s when Julia Roberts, as you said, was just this force to be reckoned with, yeah, it is kind of a surprise that she hasn't been able to regain that. Well, let's compare this movie to Julie and Julia, which opened at a similar time last year, uh, and it opened at number two behind G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, another dumb action movie with $20 million. Um, but it ended up grossing uh, $118 million worldwide. So I actually think that we could be in for a long play situation with Eat, Pray, Love as counter-programming uh, of, sim- of a similar type as Julia and Julia to an older female audience. Not saying that they you know, flock to the movies anymore unless it's Mamma Mia or The Twilight Saga. Mamma Mia up against The Dark Knight, you remember. I, yeah. yeah, and that made bank. Yeah, it held... Um, but let's also consider reviews, too, because Eat, Pray, yeah. Love hasn't gotten the best reviews. And they're not as good as Julie and Julia. Right. And, and, you know, Julie Roberts, quite frankly, is no Meryl Streep. Um, <laughs> right. So. Right. That's true. So I, I agree. And, it, look, it's got an international um, appeal, I guess, given that it's kind of a globe-trotting story. And you know what? I'm going to see this movie, and I'm going to see it. I actually had had a sort of note on Facebook about this. I'm going to see it because of Richard Jenkins. Oh, wow. Because I will see Richard Jenkins in anything. But I, I don't really say that about people unless they're, like, obscure character actors. <laughs> um, so Richard Jenkins and, and Javier Bardem are drawing me to Eat, Pray, Love, plus the fact that I kind of like Lee. Viola Davis is in it, too, you know? I, I didn't mean, know that. Yeah, she's her friend. She, I think Viola Davis is getting a lot of friend roles Yeah, probably or, now. Like, roles in, like, CIA yeah, or something. And yeah, the head of CIA and night and day, that's a shame. Yeah. So, but anyway, I, it could have legs, but I do, I mean, I mean, quickly, do you think that Julia Roberts, do you think her reign is over? I mean, it's been over it's, for I mean, a while. Do probably, you think she can probably. come back? I I think she could come back, but I don't think she wants to because to come back, she'd have to make another romantic comedy with Richard Gere. <laughs> she's been, I mean, I, you know, it seems like throughout the last decade, she's been working with Steven Soderbergh. She's worked with Mike Nichols twice. It looks like she's interested in doing new things, doing more interesting things with her star power. Uh, I mean, even Duplicity, a movie that didn't make any money, uh, was by a director coming off of an Academy Award nomination for Best Director for Michael Clayton and and did some interesting things. You know, she hasn't made a lot of money. She hasn't really done, uh, you know, as well as everybody's expected her to do. But that's, I think, because, you know, as she's getting older, she's doing more esoteric work. Mm-hmm. I really thought that this was going to be the one to bring her back. I, mean, I kind of did, too. Because I think the trailer's really strong. And, I mean, it's based on a, an incredibly popular novel. And I think a lot of a lot of her fans have probably been waiting for her to sort of uh, win again, so to speak. And I, I really thought, and it might, it might still. I mean, we're very early here, and yeah. you know, as, as the releases start to get worse and worse as we head into this into September. Yeah, the doldrums of September, which resemble the spring in in, in some ways. I think that it, it could even reach number one next week. I mean, if Piranha 3D doesn't deliver. Does that come out next week? I think so. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't well, know if we're going to talk about I think, it. I think we should we should look more closely at Ypres Love's performance next weekend. Definitely. Uh, because that will give us the answers we seek. Definitely. Uh, and box office-wise, let, let us also mention that Inception only fell 38% again man. this week, and it's going to come in with like $12 million, which puts it at like 250 domestic, and I think that it's approaching 500 worldwide now. You've got you've to think that's that's well within expectations for that movie, that yep. everybody's very happy with So that. yeah, we can, we can officially say that Inception got the job done. 
Yeah. It did, and it's still going. Um, and look, we've talked about this before on the show, but it still seems that the flatlining James Bond franchise is still swimming in murky waters, which completely shocks me given that it has grossed a combined $1.1 billion worldwide with its last two movies. The LA Times reports there are significant disagreements among the current creative team about the direction of the next film, which would be the 23rd installment in the James Bond franchise. And this comes on the heels of MGM's struggles with uh, mounting debt and it's trying to sell itself to somebody to get its projects made. And the LA Times even caught up with the Bond of the present himself, Daniel Craig, currently filming John Favreau's Cowboy and Aliens, who said the following, It is what it is. Unless MGM can sort themselves out, we can't make a movie. It's hard to talk about things that aren't happening. There will be a lot more to say when things are happening. I'm really keen to get going. It's as simple as that, and I'm hoping that in a while we will. Now, Corey, could this be the end of James Bond, or at least for an extended amount of time? I fear that it is. Um, after Quantum of Solace, I can't, you know, claim to be too upset. Unless but it was a huge box office it success. Was, it was. Um, I think it was creatively the wrong way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that makes me sad. It's been, I mean, apart from Bond sort of vanishing in the early 90s until its resurgence with GoldenEye, the glorious resurgence, um, you know, the James Bond franchise has been pretty consistent my entire life. I would say that the lifetimes of... of Pretty much everybody who could be listening to the show, James Bond, has always been, you know, present um, in theaters, and uh, it's sad to think that the rights could just get so caught up that we'll, you know, we won't see another movie for years and years. Um, and I like Daniel Craig as James Bond. I hope that they keep him around. I hope they can get this sorted out, if only because I'd like to see a third movie make sense of Quantum of Solace in in some. <laughs> some some greater way mm-hmm. because that movie just does not stand alone. But anyway, that's enough about that movie. Well, let's skip our last break since we're running out of time, Corey, and sure. let's run through our DVD picks. What do you have? Uh, well, this week is kind of a kind of a bad week, but um, this past week I finally watched um, Jacques Odiard's A Prophet, which I think might be the best movie of 2010. Hmm. Yeah. So you counted as 2010, even though it was an Oscar nominee last year. Yeah, it got its proper American release in okay. February. Okay. Um, but that, I mean, it's a French-language prison drama, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, stars Tahar Ramin. I think he's a newcomer as, uh, as a young Arab man who is uh, sentenced, for some reason that's never explained, uh, to six years in French pr- prison and sort of rises through the ranks of uh, of crime, I suppose, organized crime in this jail, uh, comes, gets involved with the Corsican Mafia. But anyway, it's comparable, I think, in scope uh, to something like The Godfather. Uh, it explores the same sort of ideas, and it you can't miss it. It is it is a can't-miss film. I've heard nothing but good things, nothing yeah. but great things about this movie. I'm sad that I missed it at the Bama Art House series. I'm proud that they were able to screen it. Uh, when they did, and it's out on DVD now, and I've got, really got no excuse not to see it, uh, and I, I really look forward to it. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, as far as next week's releases, though, we've got finally the release of Richard Linklater's Me and Orson Welles, which I believe is exclusive to Target. Um, so if you're looking to see uh, Zach Efron hang out with Orson Welles, though I hear that the guy who plays Orson Welles, Christian McKay, does a great job. 
Um, you'll have to go to Target to pick that up. Oh, well, some people feel that he was robbed of an Oscar nomination to Christian McKay. I look forward to seeing for myself. Yeah. So is that it? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to recommend, like, the last song or anything to anybody, and I haven't seen it. Uh, next yeah, week's right. I haven't. I, I'm going to. Um, <laughs> but next week's releases are kind of kind of a dud. Okay, well, we'll get to those next week. And as for me, I hope to finally watch what some consider to be the best comedy ever, Some Like It Hot, the Billy Wilder classic, after having watched Hot Tub Time Machine earlier this week. So those are kind of disparate comedies, I would say. Well, I think they work as a double feature. Uh, which I have to finish later. And I actually really enjoyed Hot Tub Time Machine, thanks in large part to Rob Corddry. Yeah, it's funny. He is a beast in that movie. Yeah. Unreal. And I, and I would even argue, I mean, I think that the apt comparison would be to Galifianakis in The Hangover, just in terms of these slightly lesser-known comedians uh-huh. casting these uh, studio projects who steal scenes. And I, I would argue that Corddry even delivers more so. And I've also got Captain Bigelow's 80s vampire thriller, Near Dark. I've never seen that. Yeah, got that. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, But that does it for me. So, opening nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this week, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World with Michael Cera and directed by Edgar Wright, which we reviewed today. The Expendables with Sylvester Stallone and a bunch of other badass dudes is also out. And Eat, Pray, Love with Julia Roberts, which neither of us have seen at this point, and I'm not opposed to seeing it. Yeah, I'll, I'll see it. Also, let me let me throw in a, an off-book announcement here. The Bama Art House series officially announced their fall series, which starts August 24th with a double feature of Best Worst Movie and Troll 2, the movie that Best Worst Movie examines, uh, followed by Sweetgrass on August 31st, Tilda Swinton starring in I Am Love on September 7th. Good pick. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Jean-Pierre Jeunet's new film, Micmax, on September 14th. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo on September 21st. Stop right there. Sure. Okay. Um, I love this series. I think that they're getting better and better and uh-huh. better. But I, I think that they I think they missed the boat there, man. That I mean, movie's that, been on DVD since June. For a long time. And there's one out now, The Girl Who Played With Fire, that is in theaters now. Yeah, it's good. Um... Is it on demand as well? No, I saw it in Atlanta. Oh, okay. It's good. Yeah, and so it's like, I mean, if you're going to get one, you got to go for the most recent one. Sure, um, yeah. Or just pass it up. But, I mean, still. I mean, it'll be fun to see that movie in theaters, but, like, it's been on DVD since Yeah, that's just, that's my only issue with these. But, the, again, they're getting so much better yeah. with this and giving people great opportunities. Well, and the final two picks, uh, Get Low, starring Robert Duvall, on September 28th, and Winter's Bone on October 5th. Those are great picks. I've seen Winter's Bone. That's a can't miss. You, yeah. I mean, that's just that's just an, an excellent opportunity to see that movie when it comes into town. <laughs> and those are two movies that might have considerable appeal in Alabama, too, just sure. in terms of what cultures are depicted in it. And from what I hear, uh, in particular, to get low, possible Academy Award contenders. So if you're one of those people who's always complaining that Tuscaloosa never gets any Academy Award contenders, here they are, mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah, so a strong lineup from them. Yeah, we're, we're really happy about that. So, uh, as always, email any of your feedback to 90.7movies at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at aspectradio or twitter.com slash aspectradio. And download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at, at aspectradio. At as- 
effectradio.tumblr.com. Fail. Yeah, that was that was pretty bad. <laughs> Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. That's what happens when you try to go fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And please do not forget to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you're going to find some cool podcasts and a really fun blog, often featuring the two of us here on this show, uh, but I guess rarely, not often uh, yeah. these days. But you can catch my and Corey's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in every Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. Until next week, for Corey Craft, I am Ben Flanagan. This is Aspect Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going home now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it, but I'm going home right now. Thank you.